0: LifeWay 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 Leadership. Leadership. Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network.
1: This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today.
2: I think I wish somebody had said to me earlier on, pay less attention to idols and images and aspiring to success and pay more attention to inner work and who jesus is calling you to become and discovering who god made you to be and humbly and joyfully and gratefully receiving that
0: welcome to the unseen leadership podcast i am your host chandler vernoy here with my co-host josh hunter what's up josh hey man you doing okay
1: doing pretty good hey i'm excited because we are talking with John Mark Comer, who is the pastor for Teaching and Vision at Bridgedown's church in Portland, Oregon, and the author of many, many books, including his latest, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which makes me feel like I just need to take a, a moment, slow down slow a little bit before I introduce John Mark. <laughs> don't worry, Mark. this is not a test. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to be like, I I mean I'm on your cadence of you speech.
2: Know, like, yeah, exactly. Bro, you just hit so many words per minute. This is not, oh, you <laughs> fail. Oh, gosh. Well,
1: that's impressive. I was homeschooled. So if I'm able to get oh, up, I'm starting oh, them out. Okay.
2: So we share, we share more than one psychosis hurry and homeschool. Maybe they <laughs> yes. go together. Let's go. Uh, John uh, Mark, we're, uh, so,
1: we're so happy to have you on today, man. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. It's a beautiful winter morning in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I'm happy to be alive. Man, that's so good. Well, we we have a we're in Nashville, Tennessee, and we had a little
0: bit of snow. Mm, so people freak out, yeah. yeah. Everybody's really? scared to drive. Now so. that's that's a pretty big deal in Nashville, right? I mean, how rare is that? It's it's pretty rare. We normally get freezing rain or ice, so it's yeah. We don't normally get snow. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're excited to have wow. you on. I know we've had we normally have book recommendations a lot from guests, and I Garden City came up a lot. That's yeah, so. come up a ton. Oh yeah, and we are extremely excited to to hear a little bit about your new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So if you're listening, you're going to want to grab a copy of this book. And John Mark, can you just share a little bit about the new book? I know it comes out. If you've read Garden City, a lot of it's in there as well, but this is more fleshed out. So can you share a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, it's basically my manifesto for slow and in a day and age of hurry and busyness and noise and distraction and digital addiction, all of the things. It's built around a kind of two line word of advice from the philosopher Dallas Willard to John Ortberg where Willard said, he called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in Mm -hmm. our day Mm -hmm. and said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Mm. And it's just exploring this idea that what if the issue underneath so many of the other issues of chaos and political division and toxicity and anxiety and depression and secularism and so many millennials abandoning the faith, what if there's actually an issue underneath all of it that you could put the word hurry to label it on. And what if that's the root thing? And what if hurry is incompatible with love and the spiritual life? So that's, that's basically the exploration of the book. And then it ends with just some really practical stuff for how to actually slow down your life in a day and age of iPhone and Wi-Fi and freeways and work and life and family and all the things.
1: Man, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. My wife and I, we read Garden City and I can't say it's been very consistent with John Mark, so I'm so sorry. But we did do some Sabbath thing just like you guys did oh, We talked beautiful. about the book.
2: Bro, there's no test. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know It it, it was really <laughs>
1: helpful. It was uh there are interesting days yeah. where you're just doing nothing and turning everything off, you know, it. You, you kind of don't know what to do with yourself sometimes. That's kind of the whole point, though, right? Um, yeah. yeah. It's, and it was really, really good. Tell me a, a question. You have been um, kind of growing in the church world and a lot of people, so for like student life camp, I have a lot of college students. They are all love your writing and they're all learning a lot more about the Sabbath, becoming more passionate about that. What have you seen mm-hmm. hurry like try to force its way into your life with the books that you've been writing and the message that you've been teaching and preaching? And how has that been as a leader to to deal with the very thing that you're like writing <laughs> against?
2: Yeah, that's interesting you asked that. Yeah, it's been really tricky and particularly the last few months. You know, the book came out six weeks ago or so as of this moment of recording. And uh, it's been a really odd, you know, I, the, the book came out in a hurry and it's, it's doing pretty well, which, which, act, which is wonderful, but that, that actually means a lot more work for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm teaching at our church right now, uh, a series on hurry and on, on developing a rule of life and it's, and, you know, so I just gave a teaching on margin on quiet on Sabbath on joy. And so it's been a really interesting like season, you know, to attempt to align my, I love that Stephen Covey line. I use it in the book that we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. Mm. And so it's been, you know, a real season of our, how do I align my schedule with my value? Very high value for a, a slowdown spirituality, as Pete Scazzaro would say. Mm. And I think one of the things I've been learning that has been really counterintuitive is that the more, um, and I think this is this is applicable across the board from small group leader to you know whoever. Um, I think the more, I don't know what the right word is, influence is such an annoying millennial (laughs) word, the more responsibility, the more voice, the more leadership or whatever, the greater your leadership role, the more that you carry on your shoulder, actually, the more that you actually need to do less in those seasons and actually focus more on quiet and rest and life-giving habits and the inner kind of work of your own soul. And I think that's been a counterintuitive lesson. I think I used to think that, man, if I ever had a book that did really well or X number of people listen to the podcast or whatever, you know, foolish American metric I had in mind, then I'll do more, you know, I'll travel more, I'll say more, I'll write more, I'll do more. But actually there's a lot more writing on it and there's a lot more spiritual warfare, you know, in the language of, you know, kind of the American church tradition mm-hmm. that comes with it. So my, um, I have this killer therapist who's like 70 something years old, super <laughs> rad Quaker, PhD, like, just like, it, you know, it's just, he's, he's, he's changed my life. And I was debriefing this with him and just thinking, man, how, how is this? I feel like I'm getting sucked into hurry as I'm attempting to help people slow down. And, and he had the, great, the best analogy. I'm not a sports guy. So it was, it was interesting for me. And he said, you know, in baseball, unlike basketball and other sports, there's and Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I'm just maybe you're right now, Open yeah. your sports guys. I don't know. He said in baseball, you know, you have the pitcher who plays this key role in the team. And, and the problem is the better and the more, you know, essential a pitcher gets to a team, actually the less they can do. Cause you can't, you can't play in a game every single night cause you can throw out your shoulder. Yeah. So it becomes this massive psychological and, and psychosomatic problem when they get to the world series because then this pitcher that helped the team get there actually can't play every single game. So it's this like, it's this game of like, you know, how much do we pull them out and how much do we put them in? And then I was reading about load management and the NBA and all the (laughs) debate over that right now. Yeah, that's a new thing. Yeah, Yeah, and how fans are so mad, you know, but they're realizing that the the, the more essential uh, uh, a member is to a team, actually the more they have to rest. And so that's been a counterintuitive lesson that I learned a little bit the hard way, but I think thankfully I caught it early on. So I'm like really attempting to prioritize morning prayer and Sabbath and days of retreat and some habits of just spiritual discipline of celebration and staying in therapy and in close friendships and calling my friends and, you know, just really trying to prioritize some of that inner healthy, restful work so I can do the best of my ability Really live from a place
1: of a- mm, man. Well, thank you for leading the way in a lot of these conversations. It really has been a topic in the church right now um, that I really hope transitions to the rest of the rest of the world. Uh, there's a. Have you heard yeah. of the book series Habitudes, John Mark? I've not, uh uh-uh. Dr. Tim Elmore, um, he Googling it right now. <laughs> Google it. They're a little short book series. He uh, teaches a lot in schools and different churches, but he wrote these books, um, just habitudes of uh, the attitudes of habit that we can form to be mm-hmm. leaders. And Mm. he uses imagery and one of the imagery, um, one of the images that he uses, that's always stuck with me. And we talk about this a lot in our organization is the starving baker concept. And this baker was so worried about pouring out and feeding everybody else out of his bakery that he didn't eat. And so therefore he ended up dying because he was a starving baker. And it just sounds so familiar, this concept of man, ruthlessly eliminate hurry so we can feed ourselves so we can feed others. We're um, worrying about our personal holiness first because that's the most important thing: is our personal holiness yes. relationship with God, so we can
2: teach others yep. about that as well. And broadening, I think, and I so agree with that, and broadening out, you know, the word holiness to, you know, what it it's more like Hebraic kind of meaning, which I think has been lost in modern English of wholeness, you know, yeah. yep. and otherness. And so, I mean, I think holy in our Kadosh know, in Hebrew, it carries this idea of whole, like you're a whole person. And that's been, I think, the great mistake of the church for a very long time, since at least Augustine, has been this tendency toward a Platonic kind of bifurcation between the immaterial and the material. And then, you know, holy, I mean, technically means other or different or unique or odd. And so I think we have to live and to lead in a way that is at odds and is different and is weird to the, cult, the host culture that we're a part of, which is one of celebrity, busyness, workaholism, you know, self-promotion, exhaustion, mm. Mm. superficiality, lack of integrity, abuse of power. I mean, that, those are the <laughs> things that are normative in a lot of leadership culture in our country and, and our host culture. And so I think you know, leading from holiness means leading from wholeness as a whole person, with your body, with your emotions, with your relationships, with your wound, with the parts of you that you are still struggling to integrate into your story, and leading in a way that is very other, unique, separate from kind of how the host culture is—a very countercultural type of leadership. And I think you know, surely most young leaders get that we have to be countercultural in our theology or some right. of our ethics. But I think we, we miss how countercultural we have to be in our lifestyle of rest and of prayer.
0: Mm. That's so good. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the questions yet. and We, we just call, we can shut call our, our computers on us. <laughs> so good. good. <laughs> so helpful. Well, hey, John Mark, let's go ahead and hop into the questions here. I'm sure we're going to even sure. we're going to hear more about this as we keep going. But uh, the first one here is this is can you just walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles you've been in over the years?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's not a ton to tell. I grew up in the church, um, the son of a pastor. And so, you know, I vowed I would never become a pastor when I was younger. And it was not like a a rebellious thing or an angst thing against my dad who was wonderful. It was more just that, that, you know, I I had not had that experience of call. And to the best of my ability to discern, I had that kind of an experience of call from the Spirit of God when I was about 15 or 16. And so, um, you know, kind of ended up just through life and not the church that my dad was at, but ended up on staff at a church when I was 19. So I spent about five years, six years doing kind of worship stuff. I played in a band and, uh, and then as well as did like college ministry kind of stuff. Actually, I mean, I started out when I was 19 as I was the quote pastor for first through third graders. So that was my <laughs> job it was we're at this huge mega church. And so... Like they actually had pastors over these different areas. Wow. And so I had hundreds of first, second, and third graders <laughs> that I would put a church service on every Sunday. That's when I, that's how I learned how to preach was first, second, and third hey, if you graders. you can keep them engaged, you can keep anyone engaged. Oh my gosh, anyone, you know. <laughs> so it was so good for me. And so, yeah, so kind of, I've been around church leadership for a long time. So I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, you know, drawing coloring book pictures of the back of the elders meeting kind of thing. <laughs> and then was on staff by 19 and was there for about five years and then um, planted a church when i was 23 so that's 16 years ago and i've been here ever since
0: what uh what instrument did you play in your band
2: i uh played guitar and piano neither of them very well <laughs> but you played and that was the most important but, I, but it was cool man and we were indie and we got a record deal and felt really good and it's a long story.
1: Well, you're at least if you got a record
2: deal, <laughs> yeah. then you can at least play. Mm-hmm. You probably wouldn't know. It's, we're just a little band. We called ourselves Coldplay. It's just like a, <laughs> that's incredible. We, we, we actually just we're we're still doing some stuff, and you know, whatever. That's <laughs> all. It's, it's not my main thing anymore.
1: John Mark, I yeah. literally wouldn't be
2: surprised if that was the truth. Honestly, though, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just on the side. Yeah, you know, Coldplay has that like fifth member that's not in any of the pictures. Yeah, it's <laughs> actually. Actually, it's me, yeah. you know, it's just a little side gig I have. It <laughs> totally makes sense. That's funny.
1: So lots of different uh, or a few different leadership roles. And the most important one, you know, pastor to the first, second, third, fourth graders, you know, we we, we heard that one. But can mm-hmm. you tell us about a pivotal moment or moments that you look back on that started to really change your leadership in life from some of those leadership roles?
2: You know, I, th- I think there's a number, but one really key one was about six years ago now, seven years ago, maybe. So um, I'd been on this team that planted the church and it grew um, very fast. And uh, we were about 10 years in. And at this point, I'm in my early thirties. I'm the lead pastor of this church of quite a lot of people. And I am basically dealing, I basically have an early midlife crisis. And some of it is just emotional, burnout, exhaustion, anxiety, you know, some of it is um, kind of identity based. I'm learning the hard way that I'm not, uh, you know, an apostle in the language of the New Testament. I'm not a leader of leader of leaders. We had 93 people on staff at some point. And at that point, you know, you're a, you're a CEO or executive director of a nonprofit, which is not a bad thing at all but I had to learn the hard way. Oh, I'm like an introverted right. kind of sensitive. I want to like read and pray and think. I basically want to teach and do spiritual direction one-on-one. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> where I feel that I'm at my best is like doing teaching or writing or then like one-on-one spiritual direction, you know? Yeah. Um, so all the stuff in the middle of the running of a church, you know, I have some of the mind for it. I have the strategic mind, but I just, I'm not built really well for it in my inner person. So there was that. But then, really, there was this deeper crisis of you know, what I would now call spiritual formation, where by that point, I'm in my early 30s, and I had enough of a kind of track record behind me. I'd grown up in the church, been following Jesus for many, many years. And I, I, I noticed this trend where through kind of high school, college, early 20s, I felt like I was on this, upward is you know, likely not the best word for it, but this forward kind of trajectory of moving toward Christ-likeness, if you want to call it that, holiness, if you want to call that, becoming more loving and joyful and at peace with God, if you want to use that language from the Gospel of John. And then in my mid-20s, I just hit this plateau. And, you know, the moment that my discipleship to Jesus began to hit kind of the deeper things in me, not just the behavioral issues, but what Robert Mahollan calls the trust structures, the things that we look to to live a happy life and put our safety and security. And the moment it hit, like, you know, all the Enneagram stuff of like the (laughs) deep ingrained habits of sin or wounding or whatever in my body that, you know, if you, if you bind epigenetics that, that are literally passed down through my grandparents, you know, into my genetic code, the moment it hit all of that stuff, it's like the way that I had been brought up to follow Jesus, the kind of Rule of life of basically go to church, have a high view for the Bible, read the Bible in the morning, practice intercessory prayer and tithe—all good things—all mm-hmm. still in my rule of life. But it just was all of a sudden like banging my head against a concrete wall. Yeah, and then a couple more years went by, and then as you know, we hit the digital age, and I have an iPhone, and I'm running this large church, and my, I'm outside of my margin. I'm not living an emotionally healthy life of Sabbath and all of that. Then I actually began to not just plateau, but I felt like I was actually regressing, not progressing, but regressing, becoming more and more angry and critical and anxious and escapist in my behavior. And there was no like moral failure, you know, in any classic sense at all. I was just a, an unhappy and unpleasant person to be around which is not exactly who you don't want leading your church, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think of was Cicero's line, as the leaders go, so is the church. So I had this epiphany moment when I realized I'm not changing, I'm not growing and I'm not maturing to become more like Jesus. And the problem was not that I didn't want to change. I really wanted deep desire in my heart to become more like Christ. And the problem was that I was not trying to change. It wasn't that I was lazy. If anything, I was doing too much, I, but it was all willpower kind of based attempts at change. The problem was I did not know how to change. And then I looked out and I realized, and this was like a gravitas moment of like, oh, such a hard moment for me. When I realized my church was full of people like me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, shocker, as the leaders go, so goes the church. That my church was full of people that early on in their discipleship to Jesus, brought up in that kind of evangelical tradition, they had some major wins early on in their freedom, breakthrough, whatever. But then most of them had hit this plateau. Very few people, even those in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, were living Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of default baseline. This is basically how I live in the kingdom of Jesus. And um, lots of people were stuck Right, or right about where I was stuck. And I realized it was the same thing. It wasn't that they did not want to change. Most of them did. And it wasn't that they were not trying to change. Most of them were trying, if anything, too hard. It was that they, like me, did not know how to change. Mm. So that's what brought me into this massive, like, kind of where this book comes out of. I basically resigned from my job. You know, I didn't leave the church. We are a multi-site church. So I stepped down, went on a long sabbatical, came back and just pastored one of our much smaller locations in the city, which has since become an autonomous church, they've all gone autonomous for all great reasons since then. And uh, really began leaning into spiritual formation and just have really been asking that question the last six or seven years, how is it that we change? And the things that I've come to realize and learn, many of which are in the book, and hopefully is the first of many books I hope to write on this subject, have just radically changed my life.
0: Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's one, one of the one thing that stuck out to me was Josh and I, right before we actually hit record on this, we're talking about spiritual gift tests and um, kind of the different gifts that God has given each of us. And it's really interesting for uh, hearing your story of saying, I realized I wasn't the right person Mm -hmm. to sit in that seat. Uh, My gifts were a little bit different. And for young leaders, I think it's easy to aspire to sit in a seat that might not be what God has gifted you in. So let me me ask you this question and a follow-up. What advice would you give to to Josh and I, to other young leaders to say, Hey, here's a way to understand who you are and how God has wired you and to know where you should be leading and serving in the church just really in life in general.
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's nothing that you guys would not already into it. Just be incredibly wary of ideals, stereotypes and formulas, you know, and refuse or at least rebel against the American gospel of upward mobility that defines success as, you know, you keep moving up in an organization and humbly receive the gift of of who God has made you to be, the gift of your potential and the gift of your limits. I think of that Schizera line, you find God's will for your life and your limitations you know and um, this is where all the great teachers of the way of jesus down through history i mean going all the way back to the the middle ages and the early church fathers and the spanish mystics in the 15th century even john calvin on the reformation you know who opens his institutes with a line about self-awareness they all basically argue that you know we grow in god awareness and in our godliness as we grow in self-awareness because as we grow in self-awareness so many things happen. One, we discover the areas of our life that do not yet align with Jesus and his vision of life in the kingdom. And we let the grace and the kindness of, and the spirit of Jesus in to touch us in those places. And two, we, we begin to just more and more become who God made us to be. And that's that's the old Jewish, you know, Hasidic tale of, you know, in the age to come, they don't ask me why are you not like more like Moses, but you know, why were you not more like Zusa? You know, and and they'll not ask, you know, for us, that they'll not ask us, why were you not more like Craig Rochelle or why were you not more like Louis Giglio or why were you not more like, you know, Rich yeah. Wilkerson or I mean, whoever, but why were you not more like Josh or Chandler or John Mark, you know? Mm. And so I think for me, I had this image in my mind's eye. This is what a successful pastor is like. And this is what I want to aspire to. It was an image that one was horrifically idealistic because yeah. you don't realize that the more leadership you have, the more you're just a a giant target for spiritual oppression is on your back, the emotional load, the cost of time, the criticism that comes along with the praise, you know, like, so it's so easy to idealize kind of that leadership role. But then, you know, even that aside, even if I had a, a more sober view of what that would actually be like, there was still this attempt to, to make myself into somebody that I'm, I'm not. And I've just found such great freedom and joy and humbly accepting who I am, but also who I'm not and finding my place. And ironically, I I feel like it's actually made me more effective at what I do, but I just don't get the bragging rights. Nobody will ever say there's a bunch of leadership things that are really important that nobody will ever praise me for, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you know, and that's just going to be part of my story. And then there are times when it really irks me, but I just have to humbly accept that and gratefully live inside my limits. So I, I think I think I wish somebody had said to me earlier on, pay less attention to idols and images and aspiring to success and pay more attention to inner work and who Jesus is calling you to become and discovering who God made you to be and humbly and joyfully and gratefully receiving that.
1: And that's really good. Uh, When when you're talking about limitations, I think, of a sermon series that Andy Stanley did forever ago, he talked about guardrails. And like those limitations Mm -hmm. that God has placed in our life, they're actually meant there to protect us, right? To actually keep us in a healthier whole, the holiness, the wholesome Mm -hmm. and being whole, um, to keep us in that, keep us in that lane. Um, So limitations are a good thing for leaders that are listening. That's a really good thing and a really wise thing, you'd
2: say. There's such a gap, but there's such a temptation, you know, like you can, you can, there's one, there's a biblical theology of this, like. You can do biblical theology of limits from Genesis one to three, and you can argue, you know, about how human beings were made in the image of God. So they have this radical potential to literally Mm -hmm. rule over the earth, but they're also made from the dust and they're mortal and they have boundaries around the garden of Eden and there's limits there. And then one way of reading the Genesis three temptation from the serpent is as a temptation to transgress our limitations Mm. That it's, it's this limitation to step outside of this good space under the creator and over the creation that God has spread out for humanity and to, to transgress those limitations and move beyond them in an attempt to become like God. That's one way of reading the temptation. Mm-hmm. And if so, it, it would indicate that the enemy and our own spirit at some level is at work to tempt us to transgress our limitations on a regular basis. And one way of reading our entire cultural moment from everything from gender is actually a great ideological example of this to just busyness and hurry and overload to debt at a financial level. So many attempts in our culture to transgress our limitations, to live outside of our capacity, our boundaries and our intent. And so I think we have to view this literally as a temptation from the serpent. Mm -hmm. that we on a daily basis have to resist just like we would resist lust or anger or cruelty or injustice we have to resist living outside of our limitations.
0: Mm, that's so helpful. I mean, just in my mind, I'm just keeping saying like, know your limits, learn your limits. And yeah. when you do, you lean into the Lord even more. <laughs> you say, I can't do this. I need you. So that's a, yeah. uh, in my weakness, you're strong. Absolutely. absolutely. Such, such a yeah. gospel filled answer. And Thank I'm you not that. God. I
2: mean, you know what I mean? Pastors are so even ones that are Calvinists, and you know, which I'm not, but even ones that have a, a high view of the sovereignty of God, I think mean, God's in control of everything still We just have this Messiah complex that is just Mm. the worst. You know what I mean? We think everything's riding on us and everything's dependent on us. And it's like, where's our Psalm 23 heart posture of Mm. the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Somebody else is in charge of my life. Somebody else is leading me and guiding me and calling me to rest and providing for me and anointing me and protecting me. And you know what I mean? We, we We have to live from that Psalm 23 place or we just blow past our limitations and then acts and then we just absolutely implode you know a mentor said to me recently if the enemy can't over promote you or under promote you he'll over promote you Mm. faster than your rhythms of grace can sustain wow and he meant if the enemy can't suppress you and hold you back and keep you from being effective in the kingdom then he'll 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 push you and give you more opportunities and, and more accolades and more notice and more eyes on you And more work to do and more responsibility faster than your actual inner formation, the character and your rhythms of abiding in God and emotional health and rest can sustain. And then you'll blow out. And this time you'll blow out in front of even more people. And I mean, that's just, I mean, how many stories we could, we could name names right now in (laughs) three seconds of celebrity pastors over the last five or 10 years. The issue wasn't adultery necessarily. And it wasn't theological heterodoxy. They were, it was just these Guys, for the most part, got promoted faster than their character was ready for. And they were living outside of their limitations. And the enemy had a field day because then it just goes live on the New York Times, you know? Mm, such and a good it's reminder. just it's so gut wrenching. So well, I think, man, the, the call again, anti hurry call to just go slow, not just like yeah. slow making our coffee in the morning, but slow. Yeah in the many patient years of
1: life. Mm. Well, two things. First, I'm going to Google some words after this podcast.
0: Because <laughs> I don't know It's
1: very, Sorry. very smart. But the second one, on a serious note, 1 Corinthians 3 comes to mind, uh, starting verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants for whom you believed, is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither mm. he who plants yes. nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Just so much of that, putting the hand to the plow, but man, God is the one who yeah. grows it, right? Not us.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then I think of his line in Second Corinthians, well, he has that great pages. line. Here's some pages. Oh, here's some pages. Yeah, Bible open, I don't think I can quote it verbatim, but he has that great line about how he won't boast beyond the sphere. Uh, here it is, right oh, here, yeah. chapter 10, verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, mm-hmm. but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God Himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. Oh, that is so it's good. good. Yeah, it's
0: good. John Mark, what was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started?
2: oh man, I don't even know where to start. I made so many. I saw that question in the notes and I literally just moved on. I'm like, I, I, do, you have, do you have 10 hours? You know? Oh goodness. I think, um, I think, you know, some broad level mistakes. One was not prioritizing my own Um, emotional health and spiritual formation enough and not prioritizing rest enough and thinking of rest as something for people that weren't as type A as me or as hardworking as me or as, you know, needed as me or whatever lie I believed. you know? So I think I I did not prioritize rest and margin and rule of life early on. And it really came back to haunt me to, I think, um, not realizing how, key on that very similar note, emotional health is to spiritual life and to spiritual leadership in general and the key role of just being a healthy, happy person who's kind and compassionate plays. And I think three, you know, a major mistake for me was I, I had a, a very poor grasp of how people change. Um, so, so my thing is, I think um, everyone has a working theory of change, meaning everybody has some theory of how you read the Bible and then you actually become the kind of person that's living this. Mm -hmm. And for most people, it's unconscious, not conscious. And, um, for others it is conscious, but it might not actually be a very good working theory. So I just, I just grew up with a set of assumptions. I kind of thought it was about like the Bible intercessory prayer and willpower. I I never would have said it that way, but if you actually looked at how I was living and how I was leading, my model was basically built around, come to church, hear truth and go do it with a little bit of prayer. Hmm. And, um, that's just, that's not a very good working model of change. And so, um, when I went on this massive, like reading research project that I'm still in six, seven years ago on spiritual formation, what was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time to me was, you know, a huge chunk of it. I don't know, 75% of it was new information to me. So somehow I got through growing up in the church, leading the mega church, Bible college and seminary without a very good grasp of how do people change? And if if the job of a pastor, and there's just, there's debate about what the job of a pastor is, but if the job of a pastor, as best as I can tell it, is to shepherd people into Christoformity, as Scott McKnight says in his book on pastoring, mm. to lead and guide people into a life that is alignment with, that is with Christ and is in alignment with his vision, that is like Christ. Then man, one of the first things we should do is figure out like, how does that happen? You know? And um, I think that's a, a major mistake I made early on.
1: No, that's really, really good. I I wanna go here with the next question. Uh, I, we've talked a lot about different ways to slow down, eliminate, hurry. But uh, I guess, talk to talk to me for a second, John Mark. So I lead an organization, about 14 um, people that are full-time that work for summer camps. And we have about 180 summer staff that are employed during the summer seasonally. But the work, you know, a lot of people ask, Josh, what do you do during the year? I'm like, well, work to play in camp. It's a, it's a <laughs> lot of moving pieces. You know, we don't You're just sit just a around. summer job, right? Yeah, we don't just sit around <laughs> yes. all the summer. But it can get really, really hectic. And specifically over the summer, it's just really yeah. hard. I don't know if you've ever worked summer camp before, but really, it's a twenty four seven job. It feels yes, like you're on call all the
2: time. Yeah, go, and it's yeah. really
1: hard to find the boundaries of Sabbath and resting for your summer staff, but also for me, feeling the burden to honor that theologically and and to obey the Lord when it comes to Sabbath for summer camp. So for a moment man, in a culture that is very demanding um, and that we, we really value work ethic, not that it can't, that that goes away with Sabbath. How do I lead my team through that when it comes to full-time staff and then even that transcending, that DNA transcending to summer staff? Man, what would you tell me? I don't, I don't want to push and push and push, but also sometimes just realistically, John Mark, I've got to. I've got to say, hey, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. You've got to get on the road. You can't rest. You've got to get to the next place. What would your advice to me be?
2: Well, I think I I would likely not give you advice. I have never <laughs> run a summer camp, you know, and and so uh, I and I don't mean that as a cop out. I mean that I would I, I just would really want to respect for sure your role and your expertise. And I, I've not run a summer camp, and so it's really easy for me to say things when I I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. For sure. Um, all I can say is I can say two things. One. The two rhythms that to the best of my ability I never break are morning quiet prayer for at least an hour and Sabbath. Those are the two things that no matter how busy I am, no matter what, and, you know, pending some like crazy early morning flight or some crazy thing, man, I I I shoot for 365 a year. Yeah. You know, or yeah. 360 or whatever. 52 and life happens and stuff gets in the way. And, you know, sometimes I'll be a day late on Sabbath or, you know, two days late if I've done a trip or something. Um, if you know, there's just no other way to swing it, but man, those are two rhythms that I fight for with all of my bones. Like the last six weeks since the book came out, I've been off of my kind of normal rule of life until about a week ago or two ago. And so there was about a month, month and a half where just, I was outside of my margins. I was outside of my kind of emotional limits. And some of it, there was just no really good way to get around it. So I cut everything else I possibly could out. The two things that I like refused to let go of was I did not miss the Sabbath and I did not miss morning prayer in the quiet, you know? And um, so those are two things I'm just saying for me that are no matter how busy I get or how busy the season is, which for me is a book release or it's fall at the church or whatever. Those are two things that if I have those two, you know, those still won't keep me sane long-term, but they can get me through a couple months if need be, you know? And then the second thing advice I would just say is, I think that leaders often have more latitude than they think they do. And I think we feel all these weird internal psychological pressures. We have to do it this certain way, and we have to placate all these certain people. And I think one of the, one of the gifts of being higher up in leadership. There's there's lots of burden that comes with it, responsibility and hours, and you know everything drifts its way up to you eventually. But one of the best things about it that I think I've been so slow to capitalize on because I'm so wary of abuse of power and leaders that do what they want but I'm realizing all the leaders I know that have done well long term all do this to the nth degree just in a Christ-like way is really capitalizing on that freedom you have to carve out a way of life for you and your team that mm-hmm. is sustainable yeah you know you meet a lot of the really high level leaders whether it be of giant churches or whatever and you would expect them to all be like Elon Musk kind of 120 hour a week kind of guys oh my gosh, yeah and a lot of them actually aren't. You know, I remember hearing Andy Stanley years ago, say, if you're working more than 40 hours a week, you're not doing your job. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how in the world are you a pastor of a church of 30,000 people or whatever, and you work 40 hours a week? I, at the time, was working like 80, you know? Tell me. And I'm I'm like, what what is wrong? with You must be lying, right? a skeptic is like, that's a a lie, that's a whatever, you know? But I've gotten around a few of those people, and man, they they lead differently than you would expect, you know? And, um, and the ones that are the Elon Musk, you can normally tell because they're angry all the time and they're mad and there's a trail of dead bodies behind them. Mm, the ones that do well, they actually don't necessarily do this insane workload, you know? So all that to say, I think that leader is the higher up in an organization you are, whatever the size of that organization, you likely have more latitude than you think. And you can actually build it, build your, your life and your staff's life or your team's life into the culture that is in alignment with your values and that is sustainable over the long haul. And that's just, I mean, that's why so many even corporate businesses are waking up to things like a sabbatical policy or longer vacations because they're realizing that the highest cost for a business, just if you're just about greed is employee turnover as a general rule. yep. And so whatever you can do to keep employees happy, healthy, productive, and around long-term, it's all money you get back. And that's just like at a pure bottom line level, right. you know, so, but I, I I do think there's a lot that we as leaders can even learn from that.
1: It's almost like time is money, but not in the original <laughs> way it meant, yeah. right? hundred percent. Yes. Interesting.
0: Cool. So one question I do want to follow up with that is you've, you've referenced a rule of life over and over again. And I know Josh and I are familiar with this because we've read um, Garden City, we've read Emotionally Healthy Leader by Schizero. For those yeah. listening, can you just explain what a rule of life is and maybe... Here's like the beginning steps of how to create one for yourself.
2: 100 percent. So a couple of things. Um, so I would define a rule of life as a schedule and a set of practices, or you could say spiritual disciplines, and relational rhythms that organize your life around spirituality abiding life with Jesus and help you to live in alignment with your deepest desires. That's my definition of it. It's great um, It's ancient language, not modern. And so the first thing you need to note is that the word rule is singular, not plural. So not rules for life, but rule of life. It goes back to um, the early church, the Latin word, the original word was regula, where we get a word like regular, mm-hmm. or it meant like a straight line. And there's linguistic debate around this, but it likely was the word used for a trellis in a vineyard. Oh. If you think of like a winery, if you've ever been wine tasting, and you, you think of like um, that, that support structure, that wooden trellis that goes under a vine, that actually helps the vine get off the ground, helps the vine bear a lot of fruit, the maximum amount of fruit that it's capable of, and helps the vine grow in a certain direction. And without that trellis, The vine will bear a fraction of the fruit that it's capable of. It will be vulnerable to wild animals and disease, and it will not grow in the right direction. That's why you don't see very many wild vines out in nature. And the early church took Jesus' teaching in John 15 on abiding in the vine very seriously. Saw it early on as a key passage in Jesus' teachings and and just played with that metaphor and said, all right, if we're like the vine and, and the way we bear fruit, that was basically Jesus' teaching on spiritual formation is we abide in the vine. We, we live in a relational connection to Jesus by the spirit. Okay, how do we do that at a practical level? And they said, well, the vine needs a trellis. It needs a support structure, something to protect it, to enable it to bear the max amount of fruit, to organize it and point it in a certain direction. So we need this trellis, we need this regular, we need this rule. And so, you know, St. Benedict was the one who popularized it in the sixth century, but it goes way back, you know, mm-hmm. probably to the second century, that language was used very early on. sure, St. Patrick, Augustine in the fourth century. And and for a thousand years up to the Reformation, that was the dominant conversation was what's your rule of life? How do we live? You know, and the thing that I would always just tell people is you have a rule of life and your church tradition likely has a rule of life, too. You just might not know what it is. And so the question is not do you or does your church tradition have a rule of life? It's um, is it intentional or unintentional? Is it healthy or unhealthy? Is it working or not working? And is it pointing you toward price likeness or away from it, mm. you know? It's so there. you I likely- don't know. I don't know it. It's there. Yeah, meaning you likely have a kind of a morning routine that you follow. You likely have a budget or at least a way that you spend your money. You likely have some kind of a relationship with food, exercise and sleep. You likely have an evening routine. Maybe you stay up late and you go to bed early. You watch a lot of TV. Maybe you don't have a TV. You likely have, you know, some spiritual disciplines that you do on a regular basis. My church tradition never would have used the word rule of life, but we had one. It was you come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night Mm -hmm. and you read your Bible and pray every single morning, read the Bible in a year and you tithe, And, you know, a couple other things, but that was, that was basically, and you do Bible studies. That was basically the rule of life that we had. So um, I think that rule of life is a way of intentionally structuring your life and your relationships and your habits to achieve the end goal of Christlikeness and a joyful, loving, peaceful life.
1: Mm, Thank you for sharing that, man. Well, we have a few minutes left, so we're going to get some really practical questions. We're going to transition to our quick hitters. These are short one minute answers or less. And Chandler, you want to kick us off? Sure.
0: Speaking of a rule of life, what is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, exercise? Walk us yeah your all own of life. that <laughs> um i
2: i get up at six and i spend um i have nothing scheduled most days today was an exception but till nine thirty, oh, and so that gives me three and a half hours to pray read scripture do some sermon work and then i i always read for an hour every single morning and, um, so I'm going to have a book and I, and my phone is off for the entire time. So my phone's never allowed on until nine 30. So you, you literally, you turn it off completely. Is that right? Yeah. I put it away at eight thirty every night. It goes in a, you know, away in another room, plugged in a charger, turned off. And I'm not oh, nice allowed place. to touch it <laughs> till nine thirty the next morning. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, of That's course, awesome. if there's an exception or there's a, you know, like our phone call this morning was at eight my assistant schedule it because it, it's a long story, but <laughs> there are exceptions to the rule for yeah. sure. It's not like a legalistic yeah. thing, but yep. As a general rule that gives me three and a half hours every morning to just pray, drink, coffee, sit, process, emotional stuff I'm dealing with, make decisions, read scripture, read for an hour. And if I get any time to work on my sermon Mm -hmm. and uh, then normally mid morning, I'll go out for a run or meet my buddy at the gym. I'll try to exercise five days a week. And then, um, you know, basically two days a week are in kind of pastoral meetings, two days a week are sermons. That's kind of my schedule. I give a lot of time to teaching and then Sunday is church all day.
1: That's awesome. What is your favorite personality test?
2: Oh, I'm not sure that I have a favorite. I, I really appreciate Myers-Briggs. I think it's actually helped me a lot, you know? Um, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure I've ever met a personality test. I didn't like, well, maybe strength finders. I, I'm not a big fan <laughs> strength kind of funders,
1: What's your uh, Myers-Briggs type?
2: Um, INTJ.
0: INTJ. There you go. What is mm-hmm. an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership?
2: Uh, I think reading an hour a day before my phone is on is uh, maybe not that unusual, but it's, man, that's enormously helpful for me. I can get through a lot of books that way and just having that kind of boundary on my digital life is incredibly helpful.
1: I think that's that's actually a really good rule because when I get up in the morning and I'm trying to get into the habit of doing that, I like to play music for my phone, but I find myself mm-hmm. reaching for my
2: phone.
1: <laughs> yeah, of looking course. at things, you know? So maybe on yeah. Instagram,
2: some of oh, it. Yeah. Ha- I mean, there's so many neurological studies. It's designed to do that to you. Yep. So you're, you know what I mean? By having it in the, there's been, I read a study recently, you know, if you're in the same room as your phone, your IQ goes down by 20 points just by being in the same room with it you know, neurologically, it's the equivalent of your brain, just your, your phone, just screaming at your brain every time you're within eyesight of it. Pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, you know, so So getting it out of there. That's, I mean, and that's huge for me. Like, you know, it's so funny. Like I, it's not that it's not rocket science. I attempt to read for an hour a day and I read about 125 books a year. And, Mm. um, you know, and that, which sounds like a lot, but if you actually do the math, math, I'm not even that fast of a reader. It's just, it's right. less yeah. you know it's just about like the daily discipline That's the process it, you know it's just about uh-huh. yeah hours long just get the time in. More than like, you know, staying up all night reading some thick tone. You it's know,
1: the the James Clear Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've read that, but just like one yeah. percent better every yeah. day. One you know? yes, a hundred
2: percent. And you know, I'm a big advocate for reading. So So that being, that being
1: that being said about the phone, what's your favorite app on your phone, Sean Mark?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Screen time. That yeah. tells me when I've broken my rules. Limits. <laughs>
0: That's good going go to go the next one. Yeah. So out of those 125 books you've read, what has been the best book you've read in the past six months?
2: Oh my gosh. All right. I'm going to pull up my little, my, my, Do you list good here. Reads? Um, no, I don't. Okay. I, I would love, but, lim- but limits. I like, I like the idea of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we talking fiction. we talking talking nonfiction. we talking Christian. we talking secular. The, what are we the best more? book generic
0: that you've read in the past six
2: months. Okay. Let me look at it real fast. I always put a, mm, mm, maybe it's very short. This one is so short, but maybe the newest one by Ronald Rollheiser called Domestic Monastery was huh. absolutely amazing.
0: Can you give us a little uh, overview of it?
2: Um, Yeah, so it's basically, well, you never asked me to do something short. I'm the worst at (laughs) that. It's basically, it's this tiny little book. And it's basically a case for parents for how to turn your home into a monastic center. And basically he's arguing that if you parent in such a way or just live in such a way that the interruptions of your life are welcomed, that it can have the same effect on your spiritual formation into a person of love as living in a monastery would. And he talks about how Benedict and the early monastic founders, they rang a bell for the seven hours of prayer, however many hours of prayer, depending on the tradition. Mm -hmm. And they would teach the monks that you had to drop everything that you were doing right then and right there and come. If you were writing a letter, you had to stop mid sentence. If you were planting a cabbage, you had to stop mid plant and come to prayer. And it was to teach them that their time was not their own in order to, and this is what I think a huge part of the spiritual journey, if not the main thing of the spiritual journey is, to move you off of the egoic operating system where everything's about you, what you want, what you need, to a life of agape, of self-giving, mm-hmm. other-centered love. And he just writes about this monk who went away for 30 years and then came back and spent time with his mom who had been a mother to six children and realized that she was both more contemplative than he was and more loving than he was after 30 (laughs) years as a hermit in prayer. And and he just, yeah, it's a long time. (laughs) And he just makes the point that if you parent in such a way or live in such a way, you can apply to other situations to where you see the interruptions um, not as an Anger or annoyance or agitation, but you view them as your monastic bells that every time your child interrupts you, it's the monastic bell to move you off of the egoic operating system, to help you become a person of agape, to realize your life is not your own and to live with joyful ease in God's kingdom as a person of love. Killer.
1: We'll have to check it out. I thought I was doing good with reading a book a week this
2: year. <laughs> yeah, I just... yeah, we were comparing. Hey, it yeah, <laughs> it's so great. We got bro, like 30 bro, books book, read. <laughs> book, book a week is killer, and that, that's like you—you you are hashtag winning. Right. And and this one, by the way, I think it's like 90 pages long, and yeah, it's a tiny this book, might book help with pictures. Yeah, my goal. With pictures. goal. <laughs> no, 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 and it's like a tiny book with pictures. It's probably actually like 35 <laughs> pages long, so you will—you can read it in one sitting. It will bless your socks off. You're my—you're my, my hero. Today.
1: All right, last question, man. Let's let you get out of here. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time?
2: Rest.
0: There you have it. Rest. And I don't think you need to explain more because we've talked about it the whole time. So good. Well, John Mark, thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey and your time as a young leader. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you in your leadership. And if it has, Head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to help other leaders like yourself find the podcast. But take some time. Don't hurry. Don't hurry. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Slow down We'll get it done. See you next week. See you guys.